The presenting sponsor of The Audible is Trader Joe's. Inside Trader Joe's is a five-part podcast series that takes you literally inside Trader Joe's. Go inside the TJ's tasting panel, travel to wineries in Napa Valley, and around the world to discover the next great Trader Joe's products. Discover why they wear those super fashionable Hawaiian shirts. You'll find Inside Trader Joe's on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Audible. I am Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman on a Thursday. We don't usually record this late in the week, but we've both been attending conference media days. I was in Chicago earlier this week for Big Ten. Bruce was there. I barely saw you. And then you hopped on a plane and went to L.A., very admirably, by the way, for Pac-12. And uh, I don't know, is your head spinning right now? Uh, a little bit, just from like I was, like you said, I was barely in Chicago. I got there late Sunday night and uh, was there for about I don't know thirty hours, and then flew back midday, midday Tuesday to a Pac-12 dinner, and then Pac-12 media day on Wednesday. But uh, let's start with this, if I may. So I saw the the Tuesday morning press conference that Urban Meyer had. I did not see the Tuesday afternoon one did, but that's that was the that was the big story that came out of Big Ten Media Days from my perspective. And I know you wrote a column about this as it relates to Urban Meyer's handling of the firing of Zach Smith, a protege of his, who incidentally is the grandson of one of Urban Meyer's mentors, Earl Bruce. People can read your column on The Athletic. For people who haven't yet, and I encourage you to to do so what struck you as the most most confounding part of this whole story as it as it unfolded in pieces it seemed like right so for people who don't know the details he zach smith the receivers coach you know it had come out the week before that he had been charged with criminal trespass in may for showing up at his ex-wife's house to basically hand over their 13 year old son instead of the neutral location where they normally do it. I think that headline kind of came and went without much notice. But then Monday morning, the day Big Ten Media Days start, our friend Brett McMurphy reports that there's a prior incident in 2009 where Smith was actually arrested in an incident. He wasn't, he wasn't ultimately charged. He was arrested when they were still married. And according to the police report, the detail was that he shoved his then pregnant wife up against a wall. So that comes out, and immediately it's like, okay, well, he's going to have some tough questions to answer on Tuesday morning, and also, you got to think he's going to fire this guy. And sure enough, Monday night he does. So we wake up Tuesday morning. We don't know what he's going to say. We we don't know if he's going to say whether he knew about this thing back in 2009 when Smith was, you know, on his Florida staff as a GA. Turns out he did. He knew all about it. He and his wife got involved at that time. Asked. Uh, you know, suggested that they go to counseling. So throughout the day, both in the press conference and later in a smaller setting when he's addressing this, I guess you, you said what's confounding? That a coach who preaches as one of his core values, zero tolerance for violence against women, and who you know had to know how much scrutiny he was going to be under this day, just seemed 
very nonchalant about the whole thing. I mean, is it, you saw the press conference. Were you surprised how much he seemed to be downplaying what happened in 2009 and just in general, like well, the, I, the whole situation? Yeah, my read on it, and I was sitting in the morning press conference, was I thought just looking as you know observer of this, and I read Brett McMurphy's story, also read the the uh, 11 Warriors report also, which would reference the 2015 incident, which I think there was one, and then it later came out there was two, correct, that they had well, been looked into? Yes, there were, t- there were no arrests, but there were two times when the police were called out, and there are police reports on that. Brett had reported that later in the day, Monday, and I think less than an hour later is when they announced they had fired him, so obviously people logically connected the two. He insisted that he... And I actually believe him based on based on some things we can talk about, but that he didn't know anything about 2015 until somebody texted him about it that night, and that basically he, this decision was made regardless of that. What's here's, what's here's, where, yeah? Here's where I, I was just like again observing this as it happened in real time, and then I'm sitting on the plane thinking of you know like kind of thinking about this and, and following a little bit long because I was online. Was he did not seem prepared on mon on tuesday to answer these questions like well prepared and what i mean by that is urban meyer and this is this is not just about this but he tends to speak in absolutes a lot of times and i think sometimes where you're talking in black and white terms and very concrete terms where he referenced and you know we we found out about this from 2015 we looked at it and there was nothing there and when he says that he could be inferring and he wasn't charged. But when you say there's nothing there, it, you know, it will read like there was nothing to this. It like it never happened. Well, not only that, he dug himself a, an even further hole by playing the fake news card, if you will, and saying, I don't know who would even write a story like this. And then, oh, by the way, a few hours later, the police reports are made public. Yeah. So there's that piece of it. And I think going back to it, I think when you, when you deal with, Yes, this happened. No, it didn't. There was nothing there. And then there's something there. People are like, wait a minute, this doesn't add up. So what I thought was on the Tuesday part of it, I thought his comments created more questions than they answered. And then I was not there for the afternoon scrum when I think I mean, I read some of the exchanges. I think it was Doug Maurice from the Cleveland dot com had had like a three or four question sequence Mm -hmm. you can and you can go read uh urban meyer's answers to it but again it just as you wrote it was like for people who are cynical about i don't even know if cynical is the right word for this people who are skeptical about okay urban meyer's changed and he's much different than the guy who had a who gave so many players who got into serious trouble at florida second and third chances He's still that same guy. It's just, you know, whatever. And that hasn't changed. Now, I would make the case just, you know, I had done this story for SI not long before I got to the the Athletic about it was kind of the guise of what keeps Urban Meyer up at night. And these were about real world issues and everything and how his players are in, are so engaged in it. I think he's got better player, better people and more more well-rounded kids in his program now than he did at florida but for the people who go urban meyer is that is exactly the same as how he was he certainly i think with how this was handled at least gave them 
enough fodder to, to come away very, very cynical. That was really the, the, the gist of my column. I was there in 2013, similar circumstances. That was a summer where, that was the summer that Aaron Hernandez, the Aaron Hernandez murder happened. That was the, you know, there were stories that, that then come out of that, of digging up how many players had been arrested when he was at Florida. And then the weekend before Big Ten Media Days that year, Carlos Hyde gets suspended. There's a tape where he, he certainly appears to strike a woman at a nightclub. And Bradley Roby is arrested for a bar fight. So he comes to that Media Days, and you know that's going to be the topic of the day. And I kind of followed him around that day and then caught up with him at the end. He was commended at the time for basically addressing all that head on, not dodging it admitting he'd made mistakes in the past, given too many kids second chances. And I always thought that was the beginning of the period where he started to change that narrative. Because really, for a powerhouse football program, they've had hardly any incidents in the last five years. I mean, there was one very high-profile one where JT Barrett got a DUI, I think, his sophomore season. But other than that, this has, not been, a, this has been a program that's largely stayed controversy-free. They won a national championship. They've won a lot of games. And other than, you know... A few Florida or Michigan fans who are never going to let it go, you stop hearing that about him. But I, I think this this whole day and the way he handled it gave people fodder to come right back because he was just, you know, and, and my column wasn't about, we don't know. We don't know what happened in 2009. So I'm not trying to play detective here. My issue was more with just the actual comments that he made that day. And I'll just read you a few of them that kind of made me wince. He's asked about 2009. He says, there were no charges. Everything was dropped. It was a very young couple, and I saw a very talented coach, and we moved forward. Later. So this was from Doug's exchange when he asked him any regrets about you handle, how you handled the situation. I've been down that road. Why do you do this? Why do you do that? He said, it's a very personal matter. Domestic issues are a lot of he said, she said, and we care about people as they move forward. After now digesting it, preying on it, going through the typical conversation with a few people I have, whatever time of day it is, I think we handled it right. He may have handled it right. But the last thing you need to be doing in this very, very heightened error about these issues is using the he said, she said card. Because, you know, if you look at the comments section of this column I wrote in Avari Wasserman's story, you're going to see a lot of victim blaming. And we don't know what happened then, but stuff like he said, she said is why women who are abused or sexually assaulted are he by a public figure. It's one of the many reasons why you would understand why they're reluctant to come forward because there's always going to be these people that say, well, how could we possibly know? He said, she said. And um, I, I just think that's doing a terrible disservice to actual victims in these situations. So I don't know. I thought as the head coach of Ohio State, he had a responsibility to handle that. Even if he believes deep down that he did nothing wrong and maybe he didn't, to just come out that day and say, like, this is a very serious situation. We, take, we don't take these things lightly. It's a core value of our program. You know, basically he had to go. From what I can understand, and we still don't know the full timeline, I was able to get one question into him on his way to the Big Ten Network set and asked him, was Zach Smith's job in any jeopardy before Monday morning when the 2009 report came out? And he said, oh, that, two, that, that had nothing to do with it. You know, I, it was about the criminal trespass thing last week. Okay, if you're going to fire your wide receivers coach, the last time you'd possibly want to do it is the night before Big Ten media days. I think if Brett's report doesn't come out, Either he's still employed or he gets fired the day after or two days after. Yeah, there's a lot There's a lot there. The one The one thing I, I dawned on me as I kind of thought back to the uh, 
some of this press availability. It reminded me of something from Big Ten Media Days last year. So I, Ohio State has a very robust group of beat reporters. I mean, it's every bit as big as any other Alabama, where you name it, beat. And I think with Urban Meyer, what I was kind of noticed the last year at, the, at that setting was he engages a lot of questions. And what I mean by that is these people in the media can ask him almost anything. Whereas Nick Saban, I'm not saying Nick Saban would, would just, would just be really dismissive, but a lot of those questions he will kick around and, and, you know, he's not like Michael Leach where it's just free flowing and just kind of think off the top of his head, but he does engage a lot of that stuff. And what I thought as I saw his remarks and this goes into maybe the how prepared he was for this. And, and you said that he said, she said, and there was a couple other things that I think were probably not in retrospect. If he saw them in transcript with like a publicity person, they would go, yeah, let's put a line through this. You can't, this is something you can't use. When it comes to stuff that is very specific, hot button issues, I think, you know, they, people in that position tend to be more buttoned up. And they will stick to the script and not go engage too free flowing because that's where you can get yourself in trouble. And I honestly think that's where Urban Meyer got himself in trouble with with some of his comments. And people start, you know, are able to parse your words and they're able to parse your words even more, you know, in social media where things are put out there in in, you know, whatever it is, two sentence sound bites. So I think that's how that kind of mushroomed into something and. You know, we'll see if there's more to, you know, we'll see where this goes next. I mean, who knows if Zach Smith's ex-wife, is she going to have more comments? Is, you know, is, is this just kind of move on? We should we should kind of add this. Brian Hartline, who was a who was a graduate assistant, a longtime former NFL receiver, has now been named the interim receivers coach. That news came down Thursday morning. So we'll see what the next, if there's anything more to this. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I mean, as big a story as this was at Big Ten Media Days, by the time they report for camp in a week or so, I mean, obviously that first day of camp, people are going to want to ask about Brian Hartline. But other than that, is this is this just going to is this will this continue to be a story that haunts them, or will it just kind of go away and everybody goes back to asking about the quarterback race? I would think that the one thing that you know, if there's any anything further that comes out from the people who are directly involved, if I'm not mistaken, I saw from some of the Ohio State media. Or Zach Smith's lawyer had given some statements or tweeted out some statements. Again, I don't know, you know, you know, if the wife is going to comment on this or the ex-wife is going to comment on this anything further. Short of that, I'm not sure what the, you know, if anything further. Because as I said, I think if you're if you're somebody who is is not an Urban Meyer believer, you just probably feel like you have more evidence to to be very cynical of his his ways. And if if Otherwise, I think you just like, you know what, it's, they're going to have a really good team and they have a really experienced group of receivers. And I think you're going to say, well, on the field, I'm not sure that's going to make a difference, whether it's Zach Smith or Brian Hartline, you know, handling the receivers. So, uh, you know, we'll see what the next thing is from this. So from the time from the part of Big Ten Media Days that you were there, what else stood out to you? You know, I'm kind of thinking backwards a little bit. You know, I talked to the Wisconsin guys right, be- right before I left on Tuesday. I'll say this is the juxtaposition of who's Ohio State's biggest rival, Jim Harbaugh. I felt like, by and large, that was a very unbuzzworthy kind of <laughs> event in that regard. You know, just like, yeah, Jim Harbaugh talked, but it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of headlines to it. 
Not well, he gave a lot of one word. That. He gave a lot of one and two word answers for one thing. Yeah, it's just it just I think right now it just I mean, granted, maybe it's year four and people are kind of are kind of settled into to Jim Harbaugh. There's not a phenomenon feeling like there was in the first couple of years, and that certainly was was the case. I mean, I don't know. To me, and looking back, it was like it became all about what's going on with Ohio State because you had a fresh news story that was kind of evolving in real time. Well, For I you, was there anything more? Well, the first day, I thought the you know the the guy who stole the show was Scott Frost, and at one point in those breakout rooms, Scott Frost was was at one table, and then across the way was Harbaugh, and Harbaugh still had the bigger crowd around him, but it was just an interesting juxtaposition to me because three years ago that was Harbaugh, the hot new coach in the conference that everybody wanted to talk to, brimming with optimism, and you know that's Scott Frost now. He's that was a, a a day where he just played to his base, if you will, and said all the right things about wanting to embrace the Nebraska tradition and get back to the old power ways. I wrote a column about how it's you know it's going to be an interesting experiment, if you will, to watch him blend these two different systems that he is versed in: old school Nebraska smash mouth ball of the '90s and Chip Kelly UC Oregon slash UCF fast paced spread offense. He said at one point, in answer to a question I asked him, that at Oregon, if you remember, they didn't lose a lot of games when he was there. They were 46-7 and under Chip, and they went to the national title game with Helfrich. But the games they did lose, whether it was Ohio State in the Rose Bowl, Auburn in the title game, LSU, Stanford a couple times, he said like those were games where the other team was just way more physical than us. And he's like, as an old Nebraska power guy, it really frustrated me. And I always wanted to like... You know, I always wanted. To, I always, he said something like, "You know, I always thought that if you could marry that offense, that Chip Kelly offense, with the Nebraska strength program and nutrition program and and all that stuff, that you'd never lose a game." So he's a very confident guy. He uh, said at one point, "Teams better get us now because we're about to get really good." And uh, because of that, I thought he was the story of the first day. Yeah, I guess I was. Uh, I don't want to say um, when I went to Nebraska in early April. That was pretty much a lot of the stuff I got. So I've already heard a lot of that before and was around it. So it, it just was more of an echo of what I came away a big believer in. So I think for a lot of people who hadn't talked to Scott Frost at Nebraska, I think that was probably the same same feeling I got a couple of months ago from that. Are you on board uh, the bandwagon? Do you think Nebraska yeah. wins? What do you think they what, over under three years? Do they win the Big Ten title? That's a good question. Over under, I think they compete for the Big Ten title by year three. I agree. Possibly even year two. I think they get to. I think they get to a bowl game. Probably not a great bowl game this year. At maybe seven and five or six and six. And then I think next year, I think they they can push for for eight or nine wins. And then by year three, I think they're winning the division. Okay, within five years, will Nebraska under Scott Frost play in? I won't say win, but play in the national championship game. Can can I just let him get to the playoff and, and Nebraska fans will will I'm sure be happy with that. Will Nebraska be in the playoff sometime in the next five years? Yes, yes, I think they will. I'm not ready to go there quite yet, but I do think they can contend for and win the Big Ten, which is something that program they've they haven't won any conference championship since 1999, which is just crazy. I think he is. I think he is that good of a coach. I think he understands has that much of have much confidence in his system. And I think as important as that, I think he engenders as much confidence. Like one thing that I would ask you on is, 
you know, in a conference that there's some really good coaches, some guys are way more charismatic than others of those. He kind of has an aura about him. He does. You know, and a lot of those other guys do not have that. By the way, has some of that, but some of the other guys who are really successful, Harbaugh has that, but Scott Frost really has that. And, and the interesting thing matters. about the the uh, interesting thing about that is, I don't know how far back you go with him. I think I first interviewed him, you know, one on one in like twenty, maybe when he first became the offensive coordinator, twenty thirteen ish. He was not this polished around the media. You know, he is now a finished product, and I don't know if that's that he became a head coach finally at UCF. Or, you know, big stage now in Nebraska. He knows he's got to sell the program, basically. But, yeah, he, he was as smooth as any any coach that appeared there, including, obviously, Urban, who's been doing this for a long time, Franklin, D'Antonio, right on down the list. Pat Fitzgerald, uh, right on down the list. Um, hey, bef- before yeah. we move on, I wanted to ask you one other Michigan State question. So, and I don't know if you were in there for Mark D'Antonio's comments, but he got asked about John Reschke. Who was a former starting linebacker at Michigan State. He did not play and was not on the team last year. He had a he had made a very insensitive remark that uh, that has been reported that it was a insensitive uh, racially insensitive comment. And he was a grad transfer, then had a knee injury, didn't play for anybody. He was asked if he's back on the roster, and as much as D'Antonio said this is a step-by-step process, he said he is, and he explained why he is back. He said he took it to a vote from his team and and, and had a vote amongst his uh, the African-American players on the team, and it was unanimous, as well as uh, L.J. Scott. had. I, get, um, I was not there for these comments that came in the afternoon, but L.J. Scott kind of explained why they, they welcome Reschke back and he's not going to be on scholarship but I think it's interesting in this regard because when D'Antonio made those comments I think a lot of people like that's a hot button issue and it's it's always been a hot button issue but especially in this day and age but I think when the comments of of some of the players that Michigan State brought there made that I think it it to me I think it kind of made made it a more acceptable outcome after you hear the like he let the players make the decision it sounds like and i thought that was i mean is there more of a story in your mind than that since the players had you know it was left up to the players to decide and it had to be unanimous and it was no i think it's a not to downplay what he did but i think i don't i don't really put this in the same category as when les miles let let the team vote on whether jeremy hill remember this Mm-hmm. would be reinstated after he was facing jail time at one point uh, for, for striking somebody, you know, I think this really truly is like, okay, you, you know what he said, you know the remarks he made, are you comfortable having him back on the team? That does make sense to lean on your lean on the players. And it's also not like this is, he didn't suffer any consequences. He was off the team for a year. He lost his scholarship. To me, it's kind of, frankly, I know it's like newsworthy at Michigan State, but it's kind of I don't. I don't read anything too much into it. Yeah, I just thought it was. I, I thought the way the situation was addressed and the way they talked about it, and certainly again because the players were there, and it was, you know, if they are accepting of it, they know this this guy, and they're the ones in the locker room, and they are invested in that team, and they are you know invested in those relationships. I think that speaks volumes in that regard. Moving on, before we get to the Pac-12 and their stuff there. 
We did talk about Urban Meyer. We did talk about Florida. There's a really, there's been some really, some ugliness. It's an ugly week in Gainesville for one of uh, Urban Meyer's former assistants, who's now the head coach there, Dan Mullen. On earlier in the week, one of his top recruits, Jalen Watkins, facing four charges, including two felonies, and following his second arrest in 11 days. Pretty significant stuff. And then there's this kind of bizarre story that came out. In the last 24 hours, I know I, the reason why I noticed it when I came back from something you were you had tweeted about it. It's just a very weird story involving eight four eight uh, UF players. It's it's a crazy story. I don't mean to 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 downplay it, but I mean I have to give a lot of credit to Graham Hall, one of the writers that covers Florida, for summing it up because a very if you read the story, there's a lot going on. But he sums it up this way: updated story. Gators coach Dan Mullen issues statement. After police report services involving six football players, police, an alleged gambler, airsoft rifles, and a frying pan. Like, you read that. What do you think the story's going to be about? I think there's going to be somebody who lost a lot of money on, on some UF games. Right. So, if you just read the initial headline, I mean, there was a lot of hysteria when the initial headline came out. And you have to really kind of dig deep and go, okay, what, what, what the hell was going on here? Nobody was arrested. Nobody's going to jail. But... 10 Florida football players were involved in this incident with this guy. And, and the whole, the, 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 the detail that just makes the story is that this gambler who was apparently angry because he started losing money on betting on Florida games goes by the name Tay Bang. So they got in a big fight with Tay Bang. I mean, some of the names here are pretty key Florida players. Most notably, they're very heralded incoming quarterback, Emory Jones, Tyree Cleveland, but yeah, there was like a just a big brouhaha in the middle of campus where people who were who you know saw it but didn't realize what was thought that there was somebody holding an assault rifle. There were some threats being made. Anyway, they were referred to for discipline uh, by the school. I think one thing that just like you when you first saw it, you thought, oh my gosh, this is the second summer in a row that they've been dealing with something. Last summer was the credit card fraud. I don't think these guys are going to be punished as seriously because it's not credit card fraud. But it was like, man, Florida can't... Every year now, there's something like this. Yeah, they can't get out of their own way. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, like I said, on the heels of, of one of their top recruits, and his was, you know, he had some serious charges connected to him. You're like, okay, you know, this is certainly not the news you want if you're a Gator fan as you get ready for the ready ready for fall camp right you keep delaying our transition to pac-12 i don't know if you just don't want to talk about it or uh, no i'm ready <laughs> okay ready. there was just a lot of stuff to get to and so so uh, pac-12 media day it's only one day not four like the sec also whereas the sec coaches jet in on their private planes and back in the day john wilner from the mercury news tweeted out a great picture this morning of david shaw and chris peterson at the uh sitting at the gate at the Southwest Terminal. There's some dude fast asleep next to them getting ready to get on their Southwest flights home. To me, just I wasn't there. I'm reading about it on Twitter and your story, guys' stories. Seeing Chip Kelly back at Pac-12 Media Days and after obviously kind of being as, as unavailable as possible during the spring to actually have an opportunity where people actually got to ask him questions at a press conference, that stood out to me. He... He's a very sarcastic guy, as people who have covered him know. And I had to crack up a little bit when he said, like, you know, very sarcastically, obviously, this was his favorite day of the year. 
and somebody asked, well, what's your second favorite day of the year? And he said, Groundhog's Day. I was very, very chip. Glad to have Chip back in college. Yeah, he was definitely the star of the day. In some ways, you know, because there were so many media opportunities, and a lot of them were, there's a radio road that you could just look at where you can see people go through this procession, and there were suites where people, because uh, working for Fox on the TV side, I'm just kind of over there, and you just watch people kind of inching their way along where there's multiple chances for pretty much similar questions, which is like a procession, you know, it's like a wedding procession line. And uh, that, in some ways, you know, because he is so often so deadpan and, you know, is sarcastic, you know, sometimes I think he probably just kind of rolls the eyes at some of the questions that keep coming. And, and a lot of, you know, a lot of the answers is like, hey, here's my go to for this. And because it's a lot of a lot of repetition. One thing that gave me an interesting perspective, by the way, on the whole media day, media day situation was before I left Chicago at, at Big Ten Media Days, Fox had me as well as everybody else who was there for TV do a bunch of reads, which were like, hey, Nebraska fans, if you're watching, you know, whatever, and you go through and list, you can watch it on Fox Sports Go. You can watch this on, you're watching FS1. Are you serious? I'm going to be watching a game and I'm going to hear your voice come on and tell me that? You're not going to hear my voice. You're going to see my face doing it. Well, anyway, so I did probably 20 of these in a row because they're loaded up in the teleprompter and you're made up and you're, you're doing it. And the, la- the the producer, she said uh, at one point, she goes, okay, we have like two more questions for you they wanted to ask. And one of them was, can you give us your, say your name and your affiliation and then say my my pick for breakout player of the year in the Pac-12 is or my pick for breakout player of the year in the Big Ten or the Big 12. And I'm about to do this. And I was like, you know what, give me like five minutes because right now I'm not even sure if I know where I, the town I grew up in because you're just like your mind is so kind of on this it's almost like your, your, your mind is numb from doing all these reads that you can't even like focus for a second. And so I was like, you know, give me a couple like here I am. I just spent, you know, a couple days at the big, big 12. I just spent, just spent, you know, whatever the previous 24 hours at the big, at the big 10. And you just got to do a little bit of a reset. So having said that, I can see how players and coaches who go through this, where they're just shuffled from one room to the next, you can kind of get, you know, a little bit of brain lock from it. It's it's very different now that I've kind of seen that the other side of it for a second. Pretty intense. I mean, I know at Big Ten, when we were in the, this main ballroom and every so often you'd hear this like screaming from outside. That was, that was us, by the way. That was Fox as well? That was a Fox thing. Yeah, yeah. that was, I finally saw it. It was the players that were in uniform doing some sort of promo where they had to yell as loud as possible. Yeah, they, they put those guys through a gauntlet, and I can imagine at Pac-12 where they have to do it all in one day. That It's pretty uh, pretty tiring. So Chip was the star of the day. Bryce Love uh, joining you via Skype. Do you, do you have any feelings about that? No, I don't. I think it's fine. He's, you know, he's at Stanford. He's going for education. He couldn't make it for media day. That's okay. Yeah, um, I think the, we'll, I think we'll the world survive. will move on, yep. We'll survive couple of things jake browning third time there seemed a lot more like i wouldn't say at ease but just like a little more comfortable in the setting uh to me the the uh one of the unsung heroes of the day was steven montez the quarterback at cu he's pretty engaging personality and funny kid i I definitely uh liked visiting with him i think people got to see just how big Justin Herbert is now at 6'6", 240, even though he looks like in the face he's 11 years old because he's got that that baby face. 
but there was uh and then you you know USC brought their two two big linebackers who one you know Porter Gustin looks like he's a man in his 30s you know he's this hugely muscled you know guy who hasn't had had any sweets in 7 years and you know d- does his his middle of the night protein shakes and everything else and I think there was a lot of a lot of fascination about that but by and large I think what was interesting was they crammed everything into one day whereas everybody else you know, these other things drag on and you kind of, I came away thinking, you know what, one day is plenty for this. It worked out fine. Everybody got what they needed. If you're in the media, I think, and it just, it it didn't need to be one of these like four day marathons. Stu, you've been on a hiring frenzy. What goes into you making the moves you make? Well, Bruce, hiring is a very hard thing to do. Getting the right people, finding qualified candidates. It takes a long time. There's a lot of applicants. But ZipRecruiter makes it easy. And we've got a special deal if you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash T-A-S-B, as in the Audible, Stu and Bruce. You can try ZipRecruiter.com for free at that exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash T-S-A-B. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. And ZipRecruiter is so effective, Bruce, that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Believe me, we would love to be getting quality candidates within the first day. Every time we make a hire, that's extremely hard. So again, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash T-A-S-B and try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So let me ask you this. I know that Larry Scott, in his you know address to start the event, was putting the spin on the 1-8 bowl record. You shouldn't look read anything into that. Uh, this is still a very strong conference, etc. You know, they're obviously coming off this year that was pretty much you know, widely viewed as one of the worst seasons a Power Five conference could have. And then, of course, everybody loves to criticize him over Pac-12 Network and whatnot. But, like, does it feel to you... Because there was a time not that long, like, only a few years ago. Oregon with Mariota, that whole run, Stanford. Like, the Pac-12 was definitely being mentioned nationally. It was not this... There was no... There was not much... I mean, at times there was arguing, you know, legit arguments that they had become the best conference maybe outside the SEC at that particular time. Did you feel like you were at the event of the conference that's now viewed widely as like the fifth out of five? No, because there, there there, certainly was some star power there. I mean, you have, you know, you didn't have Bryce Love, but you, you still have some high-profile guys. I mean, there's a lot of people who think the most talented quarterback in the country is at Oregon, you know, so you had some, some big-name guys there. But I think what really did it was you do have some star power and some intrigue with the coaches I mean, now no one thinks that Kevin Sumlin or Chip Kelly is going to make it to the playoff, but you have, you know, you can throw Herm Edwards in there. You have, you have very recognizable guys who are all really charismatic in taking over new jobs. So I think for immediate day purposes, that's interesting. You know, you don't need to, you know, I, I would argue that there's plenty of other teams. You know, Michigan State is certainly more of a, and Wisconsin are certainly more contenders to win their to win a conference and get to a playoff than any of those other three teams but just from a media standpoint like even yourself you said it, scott frost was really the most interesting thing 
Nebraska is not going to be a, a top 10 team. But the, the, what makes it interesting is because there's intrigue. And that certainly you had that with Chip Kelly. And like I said, I, I, you definitely had that with Kevin Sumlin. Khalil Tate is there. You know, it wasn't lacking for storylines. It just, I think, gets to where you were kind of starting out with. Larry Scott is trying to make, ex, you know, kind of put to the side the one and eight, which is hard to get around. We cover college football. College football is the is the bell cow for everything yeah. in, in college sports. And yet, like I talked to Brian Fisher, uh, another reporter there, and he was talking about what Larry Scott saying, you know, they, they're touting all the other sports in college, you know, collegiate sports that the Pac-12 is winning championships in, and they hang their hat on that, and that's just a little different, and it is what it is, I guess. Yeah, and I actually agree with you. You know, just following it from afar, I kind of felt like, huh, I think there are more things that interest me in the Pac-12 right now than there are in the SEC. You know, that media day was, first of all, that drags on and on and on, but, you know, the new coaches was the talk of that thing as well, and there are some really good coaches, obviously, and, and high-profile ones at that, especially Jimbo Fisher, but... If something about Chip Kelly coming back to college, Kevin Sumlin, you know, showing up at, at Arizona, Herm Edwards has obviously been something that people have been talking about, mostly in a critical way, but I think we're all interested to see how that plays out. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting storyline, no matter how strong or not strong that conference ends up being this year, there's a lot to there's a lot going on. And I would say that but but I would say also that when they put out the preseason media poll, I looked at the South Division. And I went, I kind of winced. <laughs> uh, I mean, Utah, is, so it's USC's pick to win it, and then Utah's next. Now, Utah has been a really good, consistent program for a while now. They had a bit of a down year last year. But if Utah's getting second-place votes, that tells me there's not a lot of faith in the other teams. No, there isn't. I mean, look, I could make a case that Khalil Tate in Arizona could make a serious run at a underwhelming Pac-12 South. I think they're they're... I think he's special, and I think they have enough decent young talent. And, you know, we've seen someone jump in in a first year, and players really respond to the change in his personality, so that's possible. And I talked to Kyle Whittingham for a little while, and and I think a lot is going to hinge on whether their quarterback, Tyler Huntley, who's talented and, and did some good things last year, but, you know, he said it's important for him to make decisions on when to run and when not to run, and that he can stay healthy, because otherwise he thinks he has a really good team around him. What was kind of a good subplot or an interesting subplot was there's a lot of USC people who come out for Pac-12 Media Day and there wasn't a ton of optimism you know whether it's whether you're buying JT Daniels who's a really touted freshman quarterback taking over and not looking like a true freshman I think there's a lot of people going yeah I, I think this is an eight and eight and four seven and five team and if that's what they are that will undermine the credibility of the Pac-12. It's just the way it is. When your clear flagship school is kind of mediocre, and that's what you know USC would be at that record, I think that speaks to where that division is. Because we know Chip Kelly doesn't have much to work with. We know Colorado isn't going to be you know a, a top 10 team. And we certainly know that Herm Edwards is, is probably going to have a rocky start there. So what's left? I mean, it's I would say that probably the three best teams in the Pac-12, I think they're all in the North. They they definitely are, and I think that the best-case scenario that could happen for the Pac-12 this year to really raise interest nationally, I mean, first of all, there is a lot riding on that Washington-Auburn game because Washington is the clear preseason favorite in that conference. If they lose to Auburn, 
in their big, you know, showcase game, obviously that's going to really hurt Washington's chances of making the playoff, and it's going to, you know, everybody else will be associated with it as well. Oh, they're they're if they're the best team in the Pac-12 and they can't beat, you know, one of the better teams in the SEC, then then that's going to hurt their credibility. I think the best thing that could happen for the Pac-12, Washington beats Auburn, Stanford can't lose to San Diego State again. They open with them on Friday night. Oregon, we've talked about how easy their schedule is, so they should win their first several games at least. You know, I think they want a situation where those three teams are all legit top 10 type teams that are all playing for playing each other with, with playoff stakes on the line well into the season. Two things. One, I talked to JoJo McIntosh, who's one of the better defensive players in the Pac-12. He's a safety at, at Washington, and I had asked him, you know, do you feel like you're really carrying the carrying the mantle for the Pac-12 in that game? And he said, "That's we're not thinking of it at all like that. We're just worried about Washington, and we're going to focus in on us, which is which I really think is the smart approach because they don't need to add any more pressure on themselves by doing that. Even though I think the reality is what you said, I think it it really is of that significance. But I know it's early, and I know you don't want love to jump the gun on these games. Give me a prediction now. Who do you think wins that game, Washington or Auburn? I think Auburn wins that game, though I, I mean, I'm definitely pretty torn on it. it, it on the one hand, my, my initial instinct is, well, I'm betting on Chris Peterson. Like, big game, Chris Peterson, done. But um, I think, and, and obviously they're great on defense, but if you're looking at the actual X's and O's of it, I just like, I don't like... Jake Browning's chances of having a good game against what should be a very stacked, possibly the best defensive line in the SEC, and also really good DBs at Auburn as well. Uh, I don't like the chance of that. Now, it could be that Washington comes out and completely shuts down Jarrett Stidham, too. But that's that's just my initial read on it. What about you? I, I'm picking Washington in that. And I'll tell you, like I, I think they're talented enough to win. I think Jake Browning's played a ton of football. I don't think he'll get rattled. I'm not saying he's going to tear up that defense. But also, if you look back, Gus Malzahn's teams have typically had some pretty sh- shaky starts in the yep. first month of the season. I mean, not only you know the last couple of years, but even go back to like their opener when they played Washington State, who was not a good Washington State team. And that was the, that was the team from Auburn that actually played for the national title. They barely beat a really mediocre Washington State team in 2013. And that game was at Auburn. So I, I'm i picking Chris Peterson in this matchup. I mean, I don't, we can get into it more, you know, five weeks from now. But That's a very uh, compelling argument you just made. Can I change my pick? No, you're stuck <laughs> his, with it. His rec- need, need, you're right. Chris Peterson in openers as opposed to Gus Malzahn in openers. I think you just you just sold me. No, we got, we got plenty of time to revisit that. Wait, one other quick thing, though. We didn't even mention a very intriguing story involving a Pac-12 star. Matt Hayes' Bleacher Report had a big story come out the day before that where Khalil Tate, most people probably don't even remember this, when the coaching search was going on to replace Rich Rodriguez, Ken Yamatalolo was at one point reported to be the favorite. And Khalil Tate tweeted, I didn't come to Arizona to play in the triple option offense. And that was the last you heard of Kenny Matalolo as a candidate there. And, and Hayes, Matt Hayes talked to him, and he said he absolutely knew what he was doing there. It was his absolute intention to make sure they didn't hire Kenny Matalolo. So that that definitely raised some some eyebrows. That Wow, the star quarterback was able to... Now, whether they would have hired him, I don't know. But that he was able to like actively get himself involved in the coaching search and possibly quash a guy who's actually, quite frankly, a very qualified candidate... 
that interested me, but also we get, I get this mailbag question all the time. I'm sure we've had it on the podcast. Why don't more schools run the triple option? Well, that's why. Players don't want to play in it. Oh, especially in this case, it's a trigger, you know, it's the trigger man who's going to take that pounding. And, you know, if he thinks he wants to be an NFL quarterback at some point, you know, you're realistically, you're not coming out of the triple option to do that. Right. Now, so some people would say, doesn't he realize that the offense that he's going to be running is basically just the modern triple option? And there is something to be said there. But, I mean, at the end of the day, there, there, the there is and there isn't. Yeah. Because, look, you know, how, how many quarterbacks have played in that system, whether it's Case Keenum or Johnny Manziel or, you know, some version of, look, I mean, Josh Rosen played for, for Noel Mazzoni, too. And that was a guy who, who had helped. Uh, recruit him to to UCLA so I think there's at least some wiggle room there as opposed to to you know the Navy offense yeah I mean at the end of the day in the triple option the quarterback may pass the ball 10 times in a game so Khalil Tate as much as his running is you know at what everybody thinks of him first because he's an amazing runner uh, I watched him in the bowl game he can throw the ball too and he does have every reason to be trying to audition for the nfl so i have no problem do you have any problem with him sending that tweet no because i mean look we're like he's speaking his mind i i i don't have a i guess i don't i don't have a problem with him doing that i do think if i i feel a little bit for kendi amatololo because as you said i think he's one of the you know one of the best 20 coaches in college football you know cole tate is speaking his mind and he definitely has a vested interest in what kind of offense they run. Now, it's not to say Kenny Matololo might not have done something you know different than what his offense maybe would have played more, given him a lot more flexibility in, in how he would have handled it. We'll never know. But, you know, it's kind of one of those things where I look and I'm like, man, you kind of, you kind of feel for Kenny Matololo because I do feel like it diminishes a little bit his credit, not his credibility, but just like how good of a coach he is when, when somebody makes that comment. It's not intended to do that, but that's kind of the, that's the unintended comment. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, um, you know, he did nothing wrong. He's a great coach. He doesn't, you know, it's unfortunate that he would get called out publicly like that. But I would also say it's not like the schools usually consult the players on who they want as the next coach. How many times have we heard a player say they, they found out about who the new coach was on Twitter so if, if the ADs that run these things aren't going to give the actual players any input into who the coach should be, well, I guess that's what he had to resort to. All right, one last thing I wanted to bring up. ESPN with an interesting piece that came out Thursday morning where they're using analytics. Let's see, specifically ESPN to celebrate 20 years of national championship games, going back to the first game of the BCS. ESPN Analytics calculated overall offensive and defensive ratings to find the true strength of a champion through a comparison of top college football programs across seasons. This model includes a giant net, blah, 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 blah. Anyways, analytics to determine the best team of the past 20 years. And Bruce, have you? I know you haven't looked at the list. Who do you think it was? I'm almost positive who it would be. This would be the 2001 Miami team would be a clear number one. Obviously, Correct. the 2001 Miami team is the best team of the last 20 years. We, You and I know that. Everybody that follows college football knows. Oh, wait. According to ESPN Analytics, not only are they not the best team of the last 20 years, they're number three. No way. You're so shitting let, me, right? So let, wait, wait, wait. So I actually, full disclosure, we had some athletic meetings down here in Southern California, so I was tied up in them for a long time. You told me not to look at this or any of it. Yeah, because so. I knew you would react that way when I told you it wasn't Miami. I got exactly so do they ex- the so, off-the-cuff so, so, reaction I was hoping for. Do, do they explain what the metric is that they come up with this 
uh, that's Ridiculous what I was just explaining to you. <laughs> <laughs> This is, by the way, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus at ESPN Analytics. I don't know anybody at ESPN Analytics. But we like to make fun of both the FPI and the, um, mostly what we make fun of is the in-game probability charts where, like, a team will be up by 10 points with five minutes left and they'll say they have a 99.7% chance of winning and then the other team comes back and they're like, oh my gosh, on SportsCenter. Oh my gosh, they came back when they only had a 0.3% chance to do it. Anyway, this model includes a giant network of all FBS college football teams that played approximately 15,000 games over 20 years and assigns each team to a game, score, and home field advantage indicator within each season. The network establishes a team strength interrelated with every other team in the network and returns a rating measured in points above the average team. Now, when you actually get to the little blurbs that were written by some of our favorite ESPN writers, Jake Trotter, Andre Adelson, it does not actually get into what the analytics said. They just write, you know, a description of that team. So wait, did, did I tell you who number one was? I can't remember. What, what fucking difference does it make? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. The people who don't like when we curse on the podcast are not, not happy right now. No, you know uh, what? Uh, when you told me that, so here's my thing. So look, I, I was spent a lot of time at ESPN magazine. You know, I still have friends there around their 20th anniversary. They had like their dominant 20 Mm -hmm. and Tom Brady barely made the top 20. He was like 20, you know, and it was like kind of laughable. Some of the people who were in front of him, like Peyton Manning is three and Tom Brady with like a house full of uh, Super Bowl rings is 20. So, you know, sometimes I see this analytics and I'm like, you know, that you can make all, analytics or statistics and you can you call them advanced metrics and whatever they are. But just I would have liked to have this. seen the numbers if you could show me what numbers exactly claim this. But anyway, in all seriousness. So who is the, who is their number one team? You want to take a guess? Give me a second to think just this through. National champions going back to 1998. So, you know, full disclosure, you and I have done some of these kind of maybe not this year, but I feel like we ranked. Like for I don't remember what it was. Yeah, I've done um, a project like this. Yeah, so and the team that they have number one. Probably I'm guessing maybe they, high, the the USC one. Liners 2004 team. I would guess. You are close in that Matt Liner lost to this team in the national championship game, the 2005 Texas, Texas huh? Longhorns of Vince Young, and it says Jake Trotter wrote this. They are the top championship team of the past 20 years in large part because they claim the best player of the past 20 years. Quarterback Vince Young remarkably What? 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 Quarterback Vince Young didn't win the Heisman Trophy that season, but he produced one of the greatest individual seasons in recent college football history, culminating with one of the greatest individual game performances the sport has ever seen. Okay, before completely debunking this, I'm just going to point out a couple things in Texas's favor, which is A, they went undefeated. B, they beat Ohio State, who was in the top five on the road, and uh, obviously the so-called greatest USC team of all time in the championship game. And they won all but one of their um, conference games in a complete blowout, including beating our poor friend Joel Klatt 70-3 to <laughs> in the Big 12 title game. So it, it is true that that team was really dominant, and they had a very dominant player. My problem is... We're going to get into Miami in a second and rattle off all the great players that were on those teams. Can you, off the, just like without thinking about it, name another offensive player on the 2005 Texas team? Yeah, I would name David Thomas. And, I'm, and the fact I'm that I'm he's right, not even I'm mentioned hope- in this blurb, I mean, he may be my. The, only, the first name I thought of was, I believe, Selvin Young was the running back, which, yeah. you know, 
I don't know. I, I, I'm not trying to take anything away from them. I think they, if I were to actually sit down and evaluate this, I'd probably have them pretty high. But I would not have them ahead of a Miami team that had Clinton Portis and Frank Gore in the backfield. And Will Jeremy Shockey as a wait, backup. Wait, Jeremy Shockey and, and Andre Johnson was an absolute beast. You know, ask Nebraska. He just like threw them off the field. Ed Reed, Jonathan Vilma, Jerome McDougal, Mike Rump, DJ Williams, Philip Buchanan. I mean, now, I think the reason they probably didn't win this completely analytical argument is that they played in the Big East at the time, so their schedule strength wasn't that great. That being said, let me read you a few scores from that season. Yeah, but wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. That Miami team, you can say what you want about the Big East. They beat, and beat the hell, not just beat, of like five or six top 20 teams. So this is I what stands out one. to me about the 2001 Miami team. They played five games against top 15 teams. Here there are the scores. Beat number 14, Florida State, 49-27. And that beat, was a road game. That was a road game. Home game, I was at this game. Beat number 14, Syracuse, 59 to nothing. The very next week at home, beat number 12, Washington, 65-7. to On the road, last regular season game, they beat Virginia Tech, 26-24. I was also at that game. It was... Not quite as close as the score indicates, but they were in, in trouble. And then, of course, in the championship game, beat Nebraska 37-14, to 14, and it wasn't even that close. So, I don't know. That's my number one. Now, you've already uttered I don't know how many curse words. Yeah, sorry. Get sorry. ready for some more, because, by the way, 2001 Miami is also not number two. And the team that is ahead Wait a minute. How, wait, 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 wait. How far down do they have Miami? They are number three. The number two team, my friend was a very, very good team with a lot of great players that went on to play in the NFL. Wait, 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 wait. First of all, second of all, this isn't even first of all, I'm past first of all, I'm probably like third of all. Like, I'm, I'm now angry at Jake Trotter for, for saying... <laughs> I don't think Jake Trotter made this list. He's just... Somebody no, no, signed no. him well, to you know the blurb. What? Jake in his blurb snubbed Cam Newton. I know, you're the world... You think Cam, Cam Newton was, you know, the, the greatest player ever to play the history of the sport, and, and that's your right. I think I would give him a slight nod over Vince Young, but remember in the championship game. Yeah, Vince, here, yeah, Vince Young was Superman in the in the national title yeah, game. And, I, and, I will and Cam Newton did not have his best game in the championship game against Auburn. Anyway, Cam, the number yeah, two okay. team, I don't think you're going to guess it. This team, A, did not go undefeated, and B, lost a game to was one it, of my all-time it? favorite college football coaches, Mr. Houston Nutt. <laughs> Wait, wait, wait. So this is an SEC team. Mm-hmm. One of the well, was Houston gone at Ole Miss when? I mean, uh, I'm trying to think. of Nick Saban had a really good team that would have whipped Houston's teams. Yeah, he probably is it an Alabama team. No, it is not. And we can get to that part in a second. But the number two team is the 2008 Florida Gators with Tim Tebow, Percy Harvin, Chris Percy Harvin, Chris Rainey, Jeff Demps, Lewis Murphy, Aaron Hernandez, David Nelson, Carlos Dunlap, Brandon Spikes, Joe Hayden. Don't get me wrong. That was a fantastic team that completely shut down uh, a, a very high-powered Oklahoma team in the championship game. But they're just off my list because they lost to Ole Miss that year. Sorry, sorry, analytics. But yeah, so your- wait, wait. So, so okay. So tell me how the analytics of a team that lost to an OK Ole Miss team is better than that Miami team. I don't like. What are your? Where I don't know. They didn't give us any numbers. I'd love to see the numbers. I think. Based on this little description, that it's because again, Big East schedule. They're basically saying going thirteen and one against, you know, the SEC in two thousand eight was pretty stacked. So going thirteen and one against that schedule is more impressive than going. Can I okay. undefeated against Miami's two thousand one schedule? But sorry, no, 
So the Miami. Uh, let me let me do this now. So you know how many how many uh, top fifteen opponents that Texas team beat? I'm gonna, not very many. Probably like three. Three. They beat USC. It was a really good USC team. It was a great USC team. They beat them by three points. Then they played a Texas Tech team that was that was ranked number seven at the time. They whipped them. That was a home game. And they, they barely beat Ohio State on the road. That's it. There was no... I'm sorry. Yeah, you mentioned the Joel Klatt team that was 24. Like, it wasn't like this this team, which... By the way, they beat Joel Klatt's team twice. I'm sorry. He said not just once, twice. But... Like, I'm still like I, I show me the math on that. I'm sorry. Just so then the next two teams after 2001 Miami are the 2013 Florida State team that did whoop everybody they played until Auburn in the championship game, and that 2004 USC team that destroyed Oklahoma in the championship game. So I don't we don't need to get into all that. But I just think it's interesting that all these national championship Alabama teams and the first one doesn't come in until number six and that team. Is the of all the Alabama national championship teams the one that probably gets the most? I'm sorry, the least credit. The 2011 team that lost to LSU but then beat them in the rematch that comes in the highest of Saban's Alabama teams, though they are quickly followed by 2012 Alabama, 2015 Alabama, 2009 Alabama. Florida was a loss to Ole Miss, who was unranked, and that game was at home. Yeah, and they made a plaque. It caused them to make a plaque out of Tim Tebow's speech afterward about his resiliency and all that. I'm sorry. Again, great. Like, the star power on that team is probably pretty close to the star power on that Miami team. But. It is? It is? Well, no, let me rephrase. Nobody's close to the star power on that Miami team. Of the other teams, they may, they probably do have an argument for the most star power of the other teams on there. But, no. Let me, so, what, just really quick, like, if you're ranking them. Clearly, you'd have Miami number one. Just give me you know, your next, I, I, who's I, your next two of the. If you're my next team. two would have been the the USC team that just absolutely blew Oklahoma and Adrian Peterson off in that Orange Bowl. I would have had probably Texas in the top three or four though. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was that Texas team. You know, like they had a they had a really good secondary. I mean, they did have a lot of speed, and Vince Young was a was Superman in a big game. So, I don't want to. I don't want to diminish it, even though I seem to have probably diminished the heck out of it for the last five minutes. <laughs> well, it just yeah. I mean, I think I'd have USC number two, 2004 USC number two. And I think I would actually have, yeah, I would probably have that Texas team number three, followed by the Jameis Winston Florida State team. I don't know. Like, I mean, I go back, like Miami beat Nebraska so bad in that Rose Bowl. Nebraska was number four in the country. I mean, they were beating them like 37 to nothing at one point, I felt, I think. They were thirty. They they stopped. They could have. They I think they could have scored sixty that night, but thirty seven fourteen was the final. By the way, coming in all the way at the bottom, actually at number twenty one, because I guess they're including both LSU and um, USC from 03. All the way at the bottom, at number twenty one. This one kind of ticks me off, but I get why from an analytics standpoint. Is the two thousand two Ohio State team that everybody called the Luck Eyes up until they knocked off Miami, who'd won thirty four games in a row. I don't think that team ever got nearly enough credit given first of all the they that team too produced a whole lot of nfl players and maurice claret wouldn't even necessarily count as one of them and look at the team they beat in the championship game no you're right that was a loaded team and they were well coached by the way where was 
was the Josh Heupel OU team that won? That's a good question because I feel like that team gets is another one that kind of gets discredited. They are actually middle of the pack or a little bit less than middle of the pack. They are number. Let's just I'll read off the whole thing real quick. How about that? And people can sit home and stew. <laughs> Uh, again, it was a bunch of Alabama teams in a row, starting at number six. 2011, 2012, 2015. Come on. Are you kidding me? The one with Jake Coker as the quarterback. Another team that lost to Ole Miss, a common theme here, is somehow the eighth best team of this whole thing. Huh? 2009, Alabama comes in at number nine. And 1999, Florida State, Peter Warwick, number 10. And I'm just going to read off the rest real quick. 2017, Alabama. Last year's team, a team that did not win its conference and beat, I believe, two ranked teams during the regular season. Number 12, 2016, Clemson. Number 13, 2000, Oklahoma. Number 14, 2014, Ohio State. Number 15, 2010, Auburn. Number 16, 2003, USC. Number 17, 2003, LSU. Number 18, 1998, Tennessee. Number 19, 2007, LSU. Somehow the two-loss team is not last on this list. Number 20, 2006, Florida, and number 21, 2002, Ohio State. Does this list qualify in your mind as clickbait? No, because there is some sort of science behind it. It wasn't just like some <laughs> yes. random person putting it out. And I have a lot of, to be clear, I, I, this is nothing against Andrea and Jake and the people, Adam Rittenberg, Kyle Bonagara, whose bylines are showing up on this. I would just like to get a look at the computers that spit these numbers out in the first place. But congratulations. Hey, they, they, they gave us something to talk about for 20 minutes on our podcast, so thanks, guys. We didn't do mailbag this week. We actually didn't have that many questions, so I think it's time for you guys to um, replenish the mailbag, and you can do that by sending your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We are going to try to get back to our regular Monday schedule that we have usually do before there were vacations and media days. That will either be next week or possibly the week after. It's just been hard to have a set day when everybody's been traveling as always you should give us a five-star rating on itunes on apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts tell your friends we'll see you next time if you enjoy our podcast and you haven't subscribed yet what are you waiting for subscribe to the audible on apple podcasts google play wherever you get your podcasts leave a five-star review while you're there we'd like to thank our presenting sponsor for 2018 trader joe's We'd also like to thank our producer, Nick Fink. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on iTunes or Spotify. You can subscribe to my college football website, The All-American, by going to theathletic.com slash theaudible, where you get a 25% discount and a seven-day free trial. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB on Twitter. You can follow me at SL Mandel. See you next time. Talk about